0: If we haven't met, my name is Hannah, and it's fantastic to have you with us this morning. And before I begin, I want to give you a little warning that I'm speaking about sex today. And I know we're in a room as lit as this, among people that we wouldn't necessarily normally talk about sex with, that this doesn't entirely feel comfortable for everyone, and I'm sorry about, but um, I don't want to apologize for the things that I believe that we do need to talk about with regards to the shame that makes us feel the things that... Uh, to do with why we don't want to talk about it and then let's maybe just hope that we can afford new blinds near in the future so that if we ever talk about this again it will be much darker. Um, Don't worry if this is really uncomfortable for you because Ed is going to be speaking about submission next week so you've got that to look forward to. Um, Good. Good then. Uh, As you will know if you've been coming here in the last few weeks we have been looking at... (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae and as we do whenever we look at or as we need to do whenever we look at anything that involves some of the denser theology of what Paul has to say we absolutely need to look at who he was writing to and why which is particularly difficult with this particular letter because shortly after he wrote this letter um the was destroyed completely by an earthquake, and it was rebuilt, but then it was later abandoned completely, and it's never been excavated. So there is a lot of guesswork in the massive magnitude of work and writing and theological study that's been done on this letter since then in terms of what exactly he meant. But to put you more at ease with some pastor lingo that um, I've been working on that might you know, be more, more used to, I'm going to dive right into the passage at this point. <laughs> <coughs> So chapter 2, verse 16, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. So there's a big hint straight away that we're talking about Jewish co-opters in all of this, the food and drink, the religious festivals, the moon, the Sabbath. Uh, They're all stuff that we know to be particularly Jewish. Verse 17, it says, these are a shadow of things that were to come. The imagery of shadow versus the real thing uh, was developed from Platonic philosophy, but it's also very much in keeping with what we know to be true about what Paul thought about Jewish identity now that the Messiah had arrived. Religious festivals and Sabbath law are all shadows, just like a ritual sacrifice is a shadow of the sacrifice that Jesus made, like dietary laws are shadow of him being the bread of life, like Sabbath law is the shadow of him being the one that ultimately comes to give us rest. Shadows do a great job of pointing to the thing, but now the thing, carrying on. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person always goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. So it's unequivocal instruction, simple, profound, and universal. Let no one add to or take away from the simplicity of what you have access to because of what Jesus has done. Verse 19, they have lost connection with the head, that's Jesus, from whom the whole body, the church, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grow as God causes it to grow. Verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So the best we can all glean from all of this is that Paul is writing to refute prevailing Jewish teaching of Jewish mystics who were combining the Jewish halakhic, so the strict legal regulations, with aestheticism. This is a severe self-discipline and freedom from all sorts of physical indulgence, ways of denying physical pleasure and necessity in the belief that doing away with the flesh will heighten the spiritual, the ecstatic, and the mystical experience. So think Torah transcendentalists, law and asceticism. The co-optim teaching would have gone something like this. Strict observance of the Torah's wisdom, knowledge and teaching, combined with discipline, submission and denial of the body is how you combat the malevolent forces of this world and reach celestial status. Jesus can help you ...point towards this wisdom, but it's not the wisdom itself. In other words, yeah, maybe the Messiah part. Yeah, maybe the Holy Spirit thing also. But ultimately, not only these things. Control your flesh with the law and make like an angel. The very depiction of a worshipper without a body. All spirit, no flesh. And reach the heights not ever even thought of by an ordinary believer in Jesus... And Paul, sarcastic and to the bone as ever, builds to a clear and simple point. All this stuff is built on human wisdom and human rules and lacks any value whatsoever when it comes to dealing with the flesh. Notice how two of his three corrections in verse 21 concern physically touching things, prohibiting touching and handling what is sacred or forbidden or or quite likely, touching, in the sense of sexual relations. It's not explicit here, but the word is plesmone. For sensual indulgence, it's used here. And when it's used in other texts, it definitely is um, talking about sexual things. So we can assume this about the aesthetics. They were seeking moral victory over sexual temptation in stark contrast to the sexual customs of the Roman Empire that were prevalent in the area of, the, of that time, which shall we just call enthusiastic. I thought of a better word. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and the harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. All these rules that seem to make sense, cannot solve the problem of your flesh. It wasn't long after this point that Gnosticism really took root. It's a whole Christian movement founded in the denial of physical matter. And it's it's also asceticism weaved its way throughout Eastern and Western religion and philosophy throughout the whole ages. Mystics and monastics of all flavors have gone to all sorts of extremes, from extensive fasting... Dreadfully uncomfortable seating situa- I mean, sleeping situations, probably seating ones also. Hair shirts. that's a real popular one. Put a hair shirt on underneath your clothes and it'll really scratch and be very uncomfortable. No one will know it's there, but it will really hurt your flesh, and that's good. So hair shirts, they're big. Being exposed to extreme temperatures, even castration, all in the temps, throughout history, throughout spirituality, to deal with the problem of the flesh. Hindu civil rights activist, pluralist, pacifist, loincloth donning Mahatma Gandhi, denied his flesh in um, all sorts of ways of denying physical pleasures, including sex with his wife in the name of asceticism. And then he took it a lot further by regularly um, bathing naked with naked, beautiful women, um, but never touching them. Just off the top of my head, I can think of other ways of denying your flesh rather than bathing and sleeping with naked, beautiful women, you know, whatever. You do you, Gans. This animal-angel dichotomy has run throughout the history of mankind's attempts to find God. But what we believe has been clear in God's plan for mankind since the very beginning is that he made us both, flesh and spirit, body and soul. The late, great Eugene Peterson said, We don't become more spiritual by becoming any less human, which is where we're going on to shortly. But first, a quick and important note about the law. It's important when we think about the Jewish law to remember that legalism isn't legalism like we understand it. It's nothing to do with our effort to attain justification before God. This isn't how the law works to the Jewish people. They didn't keep the law to justify themselves. They were God's people. And the law is the thing that marched them out as thus. So we talk, about it in terms, we talk about the law for them in terms of a boundary marker, like a tribal totem. Pre-Jesus, it was seen to be the thing that held the people of God together and helped them stay together. It kept them safe by preventing them from falling into sin and falling away from him. By Jesus' time, the Torah had been added to with incredible levels of detail. Not always, as we might think, to create control not just to satisfy the whims of these staunchly righteous men in charge who love to crack the whip and keep their people in line. Their goal, at least in part, uh, was to keep the people safe. They had seen their people destroyed. They had seen the catastrophic consequences of when, uh, what happens when people fall into sin and away from God. And they were doing whatever they could, the only way they knew, uh, to stop it ever happening again. It was fear for people's safety that was at least in part motivated the Pharisees with their um, rules upon rules upon rules. A thing that I think we maybe uh, often miss um, when we sort of look at it with our cultural worldview. But fear, when it comes to our bodies and their woeful ways of leading us to sin, I think it's something that we're a little bit familiar with in church. And I hope, I hope that most of us have at least begun to deconstruct the, some of the nonsense that we've absorbed from church, albeit um, positioned or coming from a place of wanting the right thing, I think, at least in the most part. I hope that we've begun to de- deconstruct the powerful effects of the, of the powerfully damaging effects that the purity movement had on our psychosexual selves. I hope that we've been able to deconstruct the divisive and malevolent forces of how sex has been politicised, how fear of our bodies has been used to fight elections, to maintain social order, to limit freedom, how mandates on sexual identity have been claimed, totally forgetting everything Jesus modelled about those on the sidelines, the outsiders, the downtrodden. For... Whatever short-term motivations might have been held by those who seek to control sexuality, as Paul says, it doesn't work. Such regulations lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You cannot legislate for the human condition. And here is one thing that I'm sure we can all agree on. Not many people care about the church's fear anymore So we need to get our voice back, one that's got nothing to do with fear, or rule-based denial of our bodies, or arousal management, or on the other side, a sort of anything-goes-whatever-feel-good mentality that says the only issue here is shame management. A voice that has something to say about the fact that two-thirds of Americans will have had sex by the time that they're 18, and that most of them say that the experiences mean nothing at all. I mean, I get how badly we don't want to sound like the Purity Crew, but we have to have something to say about that, don't we? I definitely do. Do you want to know my stats on porn? I really went there with porn stats this week. (laughs) Do you know what the uh, most-watched day of the week is for porn? Sunday. You did know, Alana. (laughs) I was already. Do you know the least watched uh, porn day of the year? Thanksgiving. You can't. You can't hug your grandma with those hands. I am not meaning to make like of this. I promise. I'm just trying to cut a little bit of the tension in the room. And I am loathed to do anything resembling anything that heaps shame on your head with regards to porn because I'm aware of the stats, as I told you, which is that something like 80% of men have watched porn in the last week and something like 25% of women have. And I doubt very much the stats in here are any different. What's more important than the stats is the finding of big studies that have been done on this, which is that there is total correlation between um, the uh, increase in frequency of porn use, and a lower sexual and relational well-being and satisfaction, even when it's watched as a couple. I have no desire to heap shame on you if um, porn is something that you're into, whether you are actively trying to get out of that or not. The science is very clear, though, that it's having grossly damaging effects on us and our ability to have healthy sexual relationships, and I'm not quite sure why it isn't something we don't talk about more. Outside of fear mongering, shame building Christian circles, that is, anyway. Just because it's the norm doesn't make, mean it's good for us or okay. And I would like to look at why briefly uh, that is as we look to reconstruct what I think we can agree needed deconstructing. What are we supposed to feel about our bodies, the bodies that God made? Knit together in our mother's wombs, which is such visceral imagery. Bodies that he calls very good in the first chapter of Genesis. Physical, sensory, sensitive, beautiful, complicated, wobbly, bobbly bodies. And specifically the bits of us, physical, emotional, and creative, that make up our sexualities. I'd like to look briefly again at the story of creation as told right at the start of the Bible in Genesis. We did a series on this about a year ago, and if you're a podcasty kind of person, can I highly recommend it because I think it is some of our best stuff. So here is the story from Genesis 2 and 3. It's placed at the beginning of the Bible, but it dates to much later within the Hebrew people's history to when they were in exile in Babylon. We know this because it echoes and responds to the creation myths told by their captors, which predate this story by a long way. But it does so in ways that show theirs is a very different kind of God to the gods of Mesopotamia. This God isn't vengeful or destructive or punitive like their gods. This God is loving and creative and redemptive. So let's look at what it says about the created body in verse 7 of chapter 2. Formed from the dust of the ground and filled with the very breath of God, the man became a living being. Body and spirit. Body and spirit. He's called God Selim in the opening chapter, his divine image, his idol. And his body is absolutely included in this. As is Eve's, made from his rib, a symbol of side. A symbol of, uh, sorry, communion, companionship is what I'm looking for, and mutuality. They were brought together by God because God wanted his image to enjoy exactly what the Trinity had perfect self, perfect community, and mutuality with an equal. This is a picture of perfect created oneness. And verse 25, it says Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. No shame. Oneness with each other, oneness with the garden, oneness with God, and oneness with self. In the created order, the perfect status, the righteous way as it's supposed to be with God is that we are naked, our bodies designed in his image, and we are shameless, and we are one. This means sex. Zero shame about sex before God. Zero shame about this perfect act of perfect union with other. He made our bodies to enjoy sex, yes? He gave us the bits necessary for pleasure. He gave us both bits that have no other function other than pleasure. So we can agree, at least in theory, that God thinks sex is pretty darn great. That sexuality was all part of the design. That it is a vital component of personhood. We are created as sexual beings, ladies and gentlemen, so why is this so flipping difficult to come to him with, to include him in, in a way that we can with other parts of our personhood? Why is our sexual identity, our sexual self, our sexual experience, our fears, our fantasies, why is it so difficult to bring these to him? I know that for many people here, our sexuality feels like it is the thing and will always be the thing that is the chasm between you and God. How can we believe that he loves and created this side of us? Why is the shame that we feel so difficult to shift? I actually don't think this is entirely the fault of church. Or your parents. I'm not going to blame your parents for this one either this week. They do have something to do with it. If we look back to the Genesis story in chapter 3, it says about what happens in the moment that perfect oneness was broken. Then the eyes of, them were, eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. Oneness turns to blame and shame. I read this week um, about sociological studies done around shame and they show that regardless of any cultural factor, upbringing, class, heritage, anything. the a universal physical experience that we have to shame, which is to lower our head and to turn our head away from people, even people we love. Just how our bodies are linked to our emotional experience. The first and original and core outworking of our brokenness, our very brokenness of, as mankind. The crack in the selim, the crack in the perfect image of God. and it was shame that poured out. We are all cracked sexually. But this was not part of the plan. It's not what we were made for. And it certainly is not what God wants in his redemptive order for the world. So, as a representative of church leadership, can I say to you now how woefully sorry I am for what you may have experienced in church as you learn to love this part of yourself? Much less heal. Can I, however, now use my voice to tell you something else entirely? God made your body and your imagination. Both of them have key sexual components in them. Arousal is one of the great gifts that God has given to us, and we do not need to spend a lifetime annihilating it. Annihilating it does not lead to wholeness. It doesn't get to the heart of anything. And it tends to have this awful side effect, as much of asceticism, of killing something off that God likes very much. Our goal as Christians happy, mature Christians, is to grasp the tension in the now and the not yet, which is what we call this place that we're in, after Jesus, with the Holy Spirit of knowing what we are called to, knowing where we belong, but not being there yet. And it is not black or white. Let me remind you of the end of the story in Genesis chapter 3. The man and the women have sewn together leaves um, to cover themselves, but they cannot replace their innocence, nor can they restore their former divine image-bearing glory. It's nothing but a sad attempt um, to reverse the irreversible situation, a comment on all human endeavor to deal with the crack ourselves. But what does God do? He clothes them in tunics made of animal skins. These are not the same animal skins as were used by the ascetics, just to make that really clear. Clothing is a pervasive symbol in Hebrew writing used to imply status. To be clothed is to be given a symbol, um, meaning life. And in fact, the verb used here is one, of, one that's reserved um, only for kings and priests. The fact that it's an animal skin points ahead to the garment of righteousness which will be given through the perfect life and sacrifice of Jesus. Even in this awful, messy punishment scene of the creation story, the message is right there. This preemptive symbol of the restoration coming. It points to Jesus, when the glory of the divine image will be restored. Jesus, the perfect flesh, the only flesh that ever needs to be sacrificed in order to restore us to our created order. When he dies and rises again, a new world order ensues. One that says, I see the brokenness, I see the cracks, the dysfunction, the dysmorphia, the addiction, the porn habits, the loneliness, the stuff that you do when you're all alone that makes you feel so ashamed. I see it. I can bear it. I can hold it. And I see you without it. He wants to take us to that place, He wants to heal those wounds to show us a love that has no place for shame or blame or fear. If you remember nothing else about anything this morning, please remember that any experience that you ever have of shame is not from God. It is the opposite of what he wants for you. And I am well aware that I am standing on a hornet's nest of pen controversy when it comes to any discussion of God and sexuality Partly because these things are so personal and individual to each and every one of us. So now I have some disclaimers, like the um, fast-talking man on the radio about when he just sold you an ad for medication for IBS. (laughs) But they're also really important. Firstly, I am not saying that all the ways in which we might try to deny our flesh are necessarily bad. Paul has a lot to say in our passage today and elsewhere about human methods of conquering flesh, and yet he doesn't abandon his identity as a follower of the Jewish law. He still calls himself a Pharisee in Acts 23. He never surrenders his cultural legal identity, but he knows that it's not that that deals with his issue of the flesh before God. So I am not saying that anything that you might have done to um, get control of these urges are not worth anything. I'm not saying that accountability groups are bad. I'm not saying that controls on your voice on your devices are bad. I'm not so, saying that we should throw all of these um, ways in which we deal and control with our sexual urges should be thrown out with the deconstructed bathwater. Grace-filled self-discipline, motivated by the assurance of being accepted by God in every aspect of self, is entirely the name of the game. If this stuff is helping you escape the snares, then brilliant. If you don't have issues bringing your whole self, physical, emotional, aspirational, intellectual, spiritual, and yes, sexual, before God, then that's wonderful, brilliant. This talk was probably for other people. It's absolutely fine. Welcome to church. Second, I am not saying that the only way to be whole before God is an in intimate relationship with someone else. It's so important, and I know that all of this can sound so trite from someone to, coming from someone who's been married for a long time, but we are image-bearers by ourselves. None of us need anyone else to make us complete, and it has to be said that this sort of message of you're not going to be happy until you're in a committed, monogamous relationship like God intended has done so much harm in Christendom and outside it. Mutuality and oneness in relationship is part of the plan, but we are individually, each of us made in his image. We are made as sexual beings, but we don't have to be having sex to experience life. Third, I need to say something to anyone who has experienced sexual trauma. And I'm coming through I'm coming at this through a pastoral lens, not as a therapist. Uh, but I also absolutely need to distinguish the broken sexual self that's the case for all of us and um, the experience of any of us who've ever experienced sexual trauma. The science has now confirmed this in a variety of ways, that trauma gets trapped in our bodies. And I dare not sound flippant about the importance and magnitude of what it is to have the courage to go there in pursuit of healing. I speak with a bit of personal experience on this now. But I would very, very much like to recommend resources to you. So this is a journey, if this is a journey that you'd like to go on, please have the courage to come and speak to me or please email me at hannah.bread.church. We are very blessed to have a wonderfully gifted therapist who is very passionate about these issues too, um, coming here to Bread. She's very passionate about all these things and very resourced and connected in the helpful material as well as this faith. If you are beginning or have already begun a journey of recovery from trauma, then this morning what I would like to do is very much speak hope to you. Healing is real. It is the way of the kingdom of God to not only heal this stuff, but to redeem it, to rewrite these stories. To bring beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair, as it says in Isaiah. I believe that hope for these things, hope for wholeness in these things, is one of the things that God wants to do this morning. Paul famously talks about the renewing of our minds in his letter to the Romans. And everything that we know about in modern brain science um, about neuroplasticity backs up this claim. We can renew our minds. We can retrain our brains in how to think. But we can't do this by turning off our minds. Building new pathways requires us to name, to face... To fight our every instinct to turn away. To look at our sexual bodies, our sexual identities and our sexual minds and allow the spirit into them. The God who made us naked, who enjoyed us enjoying our nakedness, our barefaced, comfortable, zero shame, sexual nakedness. He understands our sexual brokenness as much as he understands any other kind of brokenness and he loves it when we allow him into these areas. I have a sense that um, what we normally do is invite people to come for prayer at the end of each service and I have a sense that people aren't going to be as comfortable as they often would with an altar call this morning. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask just Pete and Paris to come back up and sing. Can we do Spirit Fall? And I'm going to invite you all to stand. You're welcome to sing along with these guys if you want to, but I would encourage you take this moment to do what you can to open yourself. We tend to suggest closing your eyes and open your hands, not necessarily because there's magic in this posture, but because it's a way of connecting our minds and our bodies and our wills with the desire to be open. And I would invite you as best you can to just invite God into this area of yourself. Shame and fear are cut from the very same cloth and it is perfect love that casts them out.